So we're in this series called God's Best. And uh, remember, if you've been here, that uh, the reason we call it that is because it is outside of God's character to give us something outside of His best. When God gives us something, He gives it to us completely. Uh, and we talked last week about how when God gives even a judgment, which can be viewed negatively, it is a complete judgment. It is a, it is a full, and it is God's best and God's fullness. And so last week, what we talked about was God's peace. That when God made peace with us, that He gave us His best. He didn't come at us like it was a, a bargain, like we were at a table trying to negotiate. This is one of my favorite times of the year in the professional football season. I actually enjoy this, I think, more than actually watching the games. Uh, it's, it's almost like a chess match because this is the time of year where they're figuring out what players they can afford to have on their team, what players they can't afford to have on their team. Whether they want to keep them or not, they can't keep them all. And so there are players that leave teams, and you're like, oh, I can't believe he's not on the team anymore. And he goes to a team, and you're like, oh, why do you go to them? You know, and, and so there, it's just this, this chess match. But when that happens, the player and the organization sits down, and they negotiate an exorbitant salary, right? <clears throat> so a guy will turn down an $8 million a year deal to get a 10 or an $11 million deal. A year deal, or maybe he'll take eight when he knew he could get eleven here, but that team stinks and he doesn't want to lose, so he goes to this team over here and takes three million dollars less. Poor baby. Uh, anyway, the way I, the reason I say that is uh, that's not how God entered into this into this relationship with us. It wasn't a negotiation about what we had to offer as opposed to what He had to offer. It was you have nothing to offer except death. And I have everything to give you, and that's going to be the deal. I'm going to give you everything. You're going to gain everything. You're not going to lose really anything, and neither am I. That's how God brought peace to us. But he did it through the life of his son. So last week we really tried to hit hard the reality that sin makes us an enemy with God. That being apart from God, actually the word in Scripture is enmity. It puts us at enmity with God. We are His enemy. We are lined up against Him. We are at war with a holy God. And when we picture it that way, I think the demand for peace becomes all the more real to us. We have to have peace with the loving God. We have to have peace with a powerful God. So that's what we really rammed into last week a lot. And he provides peace through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. And now because of that, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And that's kind of mind-blowing when you unpack that. That, that. that when Jesus looks at us, he sees his very own son. The speaker we had at the retreat on Friday night used this expression. He said that Jesus, that God sent Jesus instead of us, to the cross, so that now, when he looks at us, he sees Jesus instead of us, and now I live for Jesus instead of me. And that is the gospel. So when God gives us his best, I mean, when God gives us something, he gives us his best. Now, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. You ever just feel weak? You just feel tired and weak? I haven't been sick. I don't have any real excuse. Uh, I had a busy week, but everybody gets busy weeks. I just feel weak today. I just feel like weary. Not weary in a way that says, like, uh, I'm bogged down with sin. Or I just feel tired. Uh, it might have something to do with the camp mattress at Camp Conquest. I don't know. But a Dusty's weary, but it might have something to do with my snoring. I don't know. But I just want to pause before we go any further because I'm tired. And in that moment, and in, in the moments this morning building up to right now, I've been well aware of my depravity. But well aware 
of my shortcomings and my weaknesses. And I've also been well aware of the power that resides in this book. So if I depend on myself this morning, you know what you're going to get? A weak message, because I feel weak. But if I depend on the power that resides in this book and the power of the Spirit that lives inside me, I think we can get a whole different product. So I'm going to ask you to join me as we just pray together one more time. God, you are a, a powerful God, a holy God, a God who, just with the sound of your voice, mountains come into existence and oceans are created. You're creative, you are powerful, you are gracious, you are merciful, you are kind, and so many other things. God, your word is full of power and authority. You've assigned it that. You've given me this awesome opportunity to sit up here and to open the pages of your word and communicate truth. And I pray that I'm just a vessel for your truth, that that I'm just the vehicle. I'm not smart enough to be able to do this on my own strength, and I I know you know I'm weak. So I pray this morning that, that we could band together in truth and that you would communicate well through your servant today. God, flush out the ugliness in my heart if it exists and allow your word to come through loud and clear. If it's of me, I pray it falls on deaf ears. God, thank you for the power that resides in this book, and I pray that it's evident here amongst your people. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to look at something called, uh, we're, we're just calling it this, God's best new life. So when God gives us a new life, God gives us a new existence, he gives us his best. It's not something that we have to create. It's not something that we have to figure out on our own. It's actually quite simple how it all plays out. I think there's one passage of scripture that really does justice to this whole plot line, and it's the one we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to look at verses 14 through 21. If you're using the Bible in front of you, that's page 667. Make it a little easier to find. Uh, 2 Corinthians is the second letter that we have that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Now, we know through referencing other things that he's written that he wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth, two of which we have access to. Uh, The church in Corinth was dealing with some specific things, and so Paul is pretty specific in dealing with what's going on in this church. He he wrote them, like I said, four letters. There was some impact that this city had, obviously like many of the churches that he planted. But he seems to have a love for Corinth that is deeper. And uh, he wants to make sure that they understand the truths and the realities of this gospel. So... The reality before we dig into this, into this passage is that we, we are at peace. So once we are at peace, going back to last week, I'm going to go ahead and make the leap. I'm going to make the assumption that we've grappled with that. I know you, you, some of you might not have been here, but, but that's the, the gist of it. We, without Christ, are at war with a holy God. And with Jesus, through Jesus, we are at peace with a holy God. And it, that is an unbelievable thing. We should probably, we could probably preach just that every week, just as a reminder to our hearts. But that's what we looked at last week. So we're going to take the leap to say now, once we are at peace with the Holy God, we are what the Word of God calls us new creations. Now we can stand here and talk about that conceptually. We can talk about the concepts of new creation or We could open up the pages of God's word and look at what that says. And uh, I always think that's a better approach. So let's look at that. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. Uh, And again, that's on page 667. It's reading out the Bible that we have in front of you there. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. 
we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God, making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a saying that goes like this. That'll preach. When you read a passage like that, there's not a whole lot that I think has to be added to it. It is pretty sufficient. But I think the beauty of being able to pause and, and just tear apart a passage of Scripture together is that we get to read between the lines a little bit and see how all the dots connect, right? So let's tear this thing apart. Let's dissect it a little bit. We're not going to flip around today. We're going to stay right here. We're going to camp out in this passage, and we're, gonna just, we're just going to reside here for the morning. So the first thing we need to look at is this. We are controlled by something greater than ourselves. We are controlled by something greater than ourselves. Look at how the first verse of this passage starts. In verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. In some versions that says compels us. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us. At the beginning of this chapter, Paul's talking about our heavenly dwelling. He's pointing the eyes of the reader to a heavenly dwelling place that will exist, that does exist, and that we will reside there someday, whether we end up dying on this earth or God comes to redeem it before that day happens. We will, if we are in Christ, we will reside in a heavenly dwelling being built by the hands of Jesus for his bride, the church. So at the beginning of this chapter, that's what he's talking about. Paul's talking about a heavenly dwelling at the beginning of of, of chapter 5. And then he transitions out of that and he goes into talking about the ministry of reconciliation. That if we believe in a heavenly dwelling and we believe in how awesome it's going to be and we believe how perfect it's going to be and we believe that living face to face with a holy God in perfection is the ultimate prize, then we are, we, we, we should be compelled, we should be controlled by that 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 desire to be in the presence of God, to see the rest of the world experience reconciliation at the level we've experienced it. At some point, if you're here today and you say, I know Christ, I am in Christ, then you have made reconciliation with the holy God. You made peace with the holy God that you were at war with. And, and you get to live in the bounty of that. So Paul's whole thought process, especially in this chapter, is to point us towards heaven, keep your eyes gazed on the heavens, and then realize that the ministry of reconciliation is of utmost importance in this world. And then he gets into this passage, and he sort of answers the why question. So we're called to teach, and we're called to live out this truth so that people see how we personally have peace with God. And once they see that, it should lead them to the point where they start to give you a little bit more access into their lives. I've told stories about my neighbors before. When we moved here, uh, we moved into town in Hatboro, and we didn't know anybody. I mean, I couldn't get to the grocery store without a GPS. I complained about traffic lights for a solid year. The town I grew up in didn't have a traffic light. <laughs> didn't have one. It didn't even have the blinking red light that they give to you appease the busy intersection, right? 
We had no light. Meg's town was bigger than mine. She had one. We moved to a town in, called Myersdale. They had two. Then we moved to Martinsburg, and they only had one. And there were horses and buggies in that town, so it really felt backward. So when we moved here, we didn't know the culture completely, and we didn't know our neighbors. Three and a half years. Three and a half years we have tried to get to know our neighbors, invited them in our home, vice versa, and we're finally to the point with some of these people where I feel like they're starting to see that I walked over a bridge one day to get peace with God. And they want to know why. Three and a half years. It wasn't a knock on the door and, a, and an instant transformation. That's not what it looked like, and that's not what it was. It was, it was an investment. And at times... It had to fight back the lie. I still do have to fight back the lie of like, well, this isn't going to happen. Like, if this person's going to know Christ. It's not going to be through me. It's going to have to be somebody else, right? And so what Paul's saying here is that we should, we should not believe those lies. Why? Because the love of Christ, which was manifested so perfectly on the cross, what does it do to us? According to this verse, what does it do? compels us, it controls us, it leads us, it guides us. It's the thing that, that is pumping in our veins. It's the love of Jesus that brought me to peace with the holy God. See, verses 14 and 15 already answer the why question. Paul doesn't even give a chance to ask it. This is one of those moments where I just love how Paul is writing and how he's, how he's teaching because he's not even giving us an opportunity to be like, but why? Right? He says, for the love of Christ controls us because <laughs> we don't even get to say why. It's like a short comma. And then he's like, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, unpack. Uh, let me unpack that for a second. We've concluded this. The love of Christ controls us because we've, include, we've concluded this. How, why does the love of Christ compel us? Why does the love of Christ control us? Because we have reached this conclusion that one, Jesus, has died for all humanity. Therefore, all, meaning sin, all of sin of humanity have died. And he died for all, that those who, have, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I remember reading that as a kid and being like, uh, I have no idea what that means. And I needed someone, my, my youth pastor sat down and said, let me... Let me read it to you and see if it makes a difference. And he just emphasized certain words and took pauses in certain spots. And it like, well, that, that makes sense. Why didn't I read it like that, right? So the first thing we need to know, first thing we need to look at is that we are controlled by something greater than ourselves. And we are compelled because we know that Jesus died to conquer all sin. It goes back to two weeks ago with Adam LaRue's message. And for our sake, he did it. And because we know that love ran so deep that it went to the cross for me, that love controls or compels me forward. The second thing we need to see in this passage is we now see people like Jesus sees people. Because we are compelled by the love of Christ, because we know that he died in our place, because we know that sin was conquered on the cross, because we know those things to be true, now we are able to look at the people in our lives the way that Jesus looks at them. Jesus looked at them as worthy enough to die for. Their sin was not too ugly for him to erase. Categorically speaking, those words, categorically speaking, 
never entered into Jesus' vocabulary when he looked at the sin of all humanity and died on the cross. There was no level of horrendous acts for Jesus when he went on the cross. All sin was horrendous, and it was all covered, past, present, and future. We're humans. We compartmentalize things. We put grades on sins, right? So if you lie, you'll get a pass, right? You make an excuse or something, you can get a pass. You kick in the doors of a school and mow down 17 people with an AR-15 and then don't kill yourself because you don't really regret it and you go to jail and the world thinks you are the worst of humanity. And I've even heard some people who claim Christ say, that person doesn't deserve heaven. And when we get to that spot, we have placed sin on levels that it was never meant to be on. You realize when Christ was on the cross, he died for the sin of that young man. He died to offer him forgiveness. And there will be horrendous earthly consequences for what that young man did. But he is worthy of forgiveness and ugliness of his sin is no different than the ugliest of mine. And when I realize that, when I see sin like that and I see how ugly it is and I see what sin leads to, I can say things like, but for grace, so go I. And that's true. I might do the same thing. I'm capable of murderous, horrendous acts apart from the grace of Jesus. I am capable of that. And if we don't let ourselves live in that truth, we will get ourselves in trouble. We'll get arrogant. We'll get prideful. You are capable of ugly, ugly things. We all are. And those ugly things, guess what? Jesus conquered those things on the cross. So if we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we can make sure that we understand the peace that we have with God because we understand the ugliness of the war we were in with him, then it changes everything. And we are able to look at people through eyes of grace. We're able to look at people the way Jesus sees them. Because in verse 16, Paul tells us, from now on, therefore, from now on, therefore, remember, if you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask yourself, what's it? That's right. Such energy in the room today. Awesome. I'm feeling it. I sort of started off on a negative note because I said I feel that way, so I'm sorry. From now on, therefore, so we see the word therefore, we need to ask ourselves, what's it therefore? Well, it's therefore... Because it's reminding us back to something that he just said. So from now on, therefore, well, therefore what? Therefore, you love because you are compelled by the love of Christ, before you're controlled by the love of Christ, because you realize what you were redeemed from, because you realize the peace that was made with you through Jesus to a loving God, that sin was conquered on the cross, and that you are a a a gracious recipient. I mean, you are a, a, a unworthy recipient of this grace because you live in that truth. Because of those things, we regard no one according to the flesh. You know what that means? That means that we don't look at people the way the world tells us to look at them. That means that we don't convince ourselves that we are responsible for protecting ourselves more than God is responsible for protecting us. That means that we don't live in a world where we paint everybody that doesn't look, talk, or think like us an enemy. Now, I'm not saying you're not allowed to disagree with people because it's very common to disagree. We live in a very polarizing society. But I think it's different if we say, I philosophically disagree with this person, and sometimes we fill it over to say that person's a moron, that person's an idiot, I hate them. Those are the kind of things we end up saying. When we start saying those kinds of things, instead of saying, I philosophically disagree with their view of life, that camp's okay to live in. But we start dipping into this one and saying, that guy's a moron. That person's an idiot. I can't stand them. I hate that person. I don't know who in their right mind would like them. When we start saying that kind of stuff, we have, we have started to look at people through the lens of our own flesh. And we've stopped looking at them through the lens of the grace that Jesus manifests so perfectly on the cross. If we can't look at people the way Jesus looked at people, we will never love them enough to see them reconciled to Jesus. 
And re seeing people reconciled to Jesus is way more important than our ideals. Whether those ideals are, are our personal convictions or our, or our political convictions or our, our just personal like views on life, those philosophies that sort of drive us, those things aren't wrong. Everything in our country right now seems to be like you're either right or you're wrong. And if you're wrong, you're right. And if you're right, you're wrong. And that's how everyone just argues with each other, right? And then you have a whole camp of people who's like, just shut up. I don't even care. Like, right? Well, there needs to be a fourth camp to that. And the fourth camp to that is the people who have been compelled by the love of Jesus are being controlled by the love of Jesus to walk into a reality that sometimes makes them squeamish and uncomfortable so that the people they're interacting with who do need to make peace with the holy God get to make it because they've seen reconciliation play out in your life. And that means at times we're going to have to cross the street and play with the bad kids, right? I went and got a haircut recently at a local establishment, and I have never in my life heard men say such vile things about women as the guys in this place. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, I don't know how effective I'm being right now. And it was a real, it was a real wrestling match for me because I thought, like, I came in for a haircut. Like, just shut up and cut my hair. I'm not in, uh, by the way, sidebar, if anyone wants to open a barbershop where the, where the shtick is we're going to cut men's hair and not ask them any questions, you'd make a killing. Same thing as a dentist. If you're a dentist, don't ask me any questions while you have your fingers in my mouth. That would be great. <laughs> Back on track. I remember sitting in the chair and I kept thinking to myself, there was this wrestling match in my mind, like, I don't think I should be here. My whole childhood, I was told to stay away from guys like him. You know, garbage in, garbage out, right? Input, output, what goes in and what comes out. And then I started to wrestle with, like, no, 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 like, I think this guy needs to see what, what the, light, the love of Christ can compel someone to look like. But I never even had a chance. I never had an in. He was militaristic to my viewpoints on life once he found out what I did for a living. And then I think he just was trying to tick me off and, and trying to push all my buttons. And I didn't really give him any bait. But I just thought to myself, I, I'll probably let somebody else let that be their mission field. God, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think you've called me to redeem the barbershop today, right? I'm not going to avoid it. But also think that sometimes we have to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations because that's where people need Christ. And, and if we always keep ourselves in a comfortable spot, we're usually spending a lot of time with people who already think like us. And therefore, there are people that are outside of that bubble that don't know Jesus and need Jesus, and they're not getting access to your life to see him. And what Paul's calling us to is a mission, uh, an explicit mission that sends us into a world that desperately needs reconciled back to God. So because of what we know Jesus did for us on the cross, we don't look at people the way we want to, the way we're tempted to look at people. Because what he goes on to say is, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, even though we regarded Christ as the flesh. Now, maybe you were at a spot, maybe I got saved. I grew up in a Christian home. I had the privilege of having Christian parents that really instilled the, the, the Christian values into me. And I feel honored and privileged to have that. But that's not everybody's story. I've met several people, hundreds of people that came to know Christ in their adult years. And they lived a lot of years making decisions based on what they thought was best or they had philosophies that drive those decisions. But at one point, they viewed Jesus just like some other dude. Just some other guy. He, he was a good teacher. or Yeah, I know people talk about this Jesus. Or maybe they didn't know about Jesus at all. But if you don't know Jesus, you're looking at him, whether you realize it or not, the same way you look at, at people. It's just another guy. So once Christ's love compels us and controls us, we start to look at him different. 
And then looking at him different and knowing him different compels us to introduce that Jesus, who we didn't look at that way our whole lives, to the people who haven't looked at him like that yet either. The love of Christ controls us. We don't look through human lens anymore. The third thing that we see in this passage is that we are a new creation. A new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new creation. It's it's an obvious example, by the way, that I'm about to use. It's obvious. You've probably heard it a hundred times. But a caterpillar crawls around. Well, it's, it's a little egg on a leaf, hatches out of that crawls around on the leaf, eats a lot of the leaf that eventually gets bigger, crawls out on a branch, turns himself into a cocoon or a, or a uh, I can't remember what it's called right now, chrysalis. Ha I got it. Chrysalis. And then uh, a few weeks go by, and it comes out of that chrysalis. Well, does it come out just a nice spruced up caterpillar? It comes out a completely different creature. Completely different. The attributes that it once had are gone. They actually know that the makeup, the like DNA makeup is different once it hatches out. It goes in one thing, it comes out a completely other thing. That's phenomenal to me. That is just ridiculous to think about. This caterpillar forms its own like hard shell around itself, and inside that shell over a matter of a couple weeks, transforms into a winged insect and then busts out of that chrysalis and then flies. And if it's a monarch, it instinctively flies to like South America. Completely different creature. So I want to, I want to, I want to picture... I want want that to be the picture in our minds when Paul says this. You are a new creation. You once were living in darkness at war with the holy God, and then once you understood what that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus affords you, you make peace with the holy God, and on the other side of the bridge, you're not you anymore. You cease to exist. You look the same. Completely different makeup. Completely different driving force behind our lives. See, too many times we've painted Christianity as I'm going to come up front, I'm going to pray a prayer, I'm going to get my get out of hell free card, and then I can live however I want and just pray a confession prayer from time to time and I'm good. But that is not being compelled by the grace and love of Jesus and making peace with the Holy God. That is not realizing that you're at war. That's not realizing the the plight that you are in. You are destined on a fast track to an eternal damnation of, of fire and hell with Satan. That's the reality of a life at war with God. That's the end point. That's how it ends. There's no happy ending. There's no way around it. There's no second train you can catch if you miss the first one. It's not how it works. So once we realize the plight that we are in, it transforms us into a new creation. If you're sitting here today and you say, yeah, yeah, I committed my life to Jesus, but nothing has changed about your life. Nothing has changed about your desire to see people come to know this truth through relationship. If nothing has changed, I got some news for you. I don't think you lost anything. I don't think you ever had it to begin with. You're still the same old person wearing new clothes. Back in my old town, there was an old messed up gas station. It went out of business years ago. It was a dirty old building. For some reason, the guy painted it bright yellow and dark blue. It was a horribly ugly building. Not only that, when he closed up shop, he just sort of left everything there. So for years, it was like this blight in town. 
They had built up nice buildings around it, you know, the whole Main Street programs in America. They had cleaned stuff up, nice new sidewalks, new lampposts. The buildings had been transformed, new, new awnings and stuff. And there, right, right in between all of it, was just this old, nasty gas station. My friend Dave called me one day, and he said, hey, I got something I want to run past you. Can you come with me? And he gets in his truck. He comes, picks me up. We get in his truck. We drive down to the parking lot of this gas station. He looks at it, and he said, I'm going to buy that. And I said, why in the world would you buy? Are you going to tear it down? No, I'm not going to tear it down. I'm going to turn it into a restaurant. I said, Dave, that building is disgusting. And it's a, it was an old garage, like the kind of garage that give you, like, the wheel to a car with a key on it to get into the bathroom kind of gas station, right? It had been sitting for years. It was a mess. Ceiling was caving in. The floor was falling apart. It had asbestos in it. I said, just tear it down. You want to build a restaurant? Build a restaurant. No. He looked at me and he said this. He said, I think it's my way to preach the gospel to this town. He said, I, God's blessed me with a, with a business mind and the money to do this. I want to I want to buy a Subway franchise, and I'm going to put it in there. And I want everybody that when they see this building, I want them to sit in here in a really nice building and eat their sub and remember how horrible this building used to look. I want them to remember it while they're sitting in it. I want to put pictures of it on the wall. So every week, from the day he bought it to the day he opened it, we'd go over on Thursdays, we'd walk through the building, and we'd pray. And I, I used to love going past it. And from that moment on, that building became a beautiful, beautiful thing to me. If you go through town today, you would never in a million years guess that that subway used to be a nasty old gas station unless you walk inside and see some of the pictures from the remodel process. One more example. A few years ago, a ministry down at CE National got money donated to them to buy a, a three-story crack house. Horrible, horrible building in Kensington, right off of East Tioga, or South Tioga, yeah, East Tioga, sorry. And uh, really messy neighborhood, three-story crack house, prostitution ring out of it. It was just a mess. It was a nasty building. And they took this building. If you walked down there four years ago, it, it, looks, it, it looks like it does today. The outside looks exactly the same. New windows, but that's about it. But you walked into it four years ago, and you would have wanted a respirator mask and then run for your life. Like, it was terrible. Dusty helped do the demo, and you can ask him. It was horrendous. But if you go down there today, that building is a three-story masterpiece where they bring college kids into the city and treat them how to love people in an urban setting and then set them loose to do it. And they equip young people to do it. Same exact building. Looks the same on the outside. Inside, everything's different. And everything coming out of that building now leads to life. And everything that came out of that building four years ago led to death. I think we need pictures like that every once in a while to remind ourselves what it looks like to be a new creation. You are not the same anymore. You're not you. You, are, you were bought at a price. Do you not know, Paul writes, do you not know that your body belongs to the Holy Spirit who is in you? Therefore, honor God with your body. You were bought at a price. That price was the life of Jesus. And when we connect those dots back to something like this, the love of Christ manifests on the cross, that's the price that was paid to bring me peace with a holy God, and then that love compels me to look at the world around me differently, look at the people around me differently. That love of Christ compels me to look at the world the way Jesus looks at the world, and when Jesus looked at the world, he said, I have to die for them because I can't stand the thought. I can't bear the reality that they don't have a way back to my dad. I know I have to be the bridge. We even see moments in Jesus' life where he basically tells God, I don't really want to be the bridge. But I'll do it. Because I know this is what it's going to take. And so he does. In two weeks we'll celebrate Easter. And Easter is just this culmination of the beauty of the life of Christ. Easter should be a way bigger deal to us than Christmas is. 
We were at once at war with God, but now we're at peace. And that makes us something completely different. You look the same on the outside, but now everything that comes out of the inside of you should lead to life, not death. We shouldn't allow sin to manifest itself and dwell inside us and infect us all the more. We shouldn't live in it. That's not being compelled and controlled by the love of Jesus. Living in sin and having sin just robustly have a place to live inside us and a holy God redeeming us from it. Those things just don't go together. They're at war. They're at odds with each other. Some of us feel kind of sick inside at times because we're trying to have it both ways and it's just not working out for us. Some of us hide our miserableness in that very well. We mask it. But I, I know in my life it feels miserable. At the end of the day, it just feels lousy. To stand or sit up here and say one thing but then go out and, and know that in here or in here it's different. It just feels gross. And those are the times where I have to understand that the grace that was afforded me on the cross is still afforded to me today. And the sin that Jesus died to conquer on the cross is the sin that he died to conquer today. And it's the sin that he died to conquer tomorrow. And it's the sin that he died to conquer five years from now. And no matter how ugly that, that sin is that comes out of me, I need to confess it and get rid of it and repent and turn away. Because I am a new creation. I'm not the same anymore. And the last thing that we see in this passage I think is important for us to unpack is in the last few verses. We now have a mission and a script. For those of us that say, like, I don't talk too good, right? Moses said that. He said, I can't talk. I can't, I, I'm not, I'm not an eloquent communicator, right? I've had young men that, that I've, I've had the honor and privilege of sitting with and investing in, and I've challenged them to get up in front and share something. And to a man, almost all of them said something like, I can't do it like you do. I'm like, well, I didn't ask you to. And, and if I could find it, I'd show you the home video of my first time doing it, and I can't believe the people didn't laugh. I think they probably thought it was like some kind of stand-up routine where I was being awkward on purpose. We watched it on Fast Forward one time to get through it because I didn't want to watch it, and it just looks like I'm dancing. I'm just swaying back and forth nervously and playing with my sweater. And the content was terrible. But the thing is, we have a script here. When we don't know what to say, we have a mission and we have a script here. Listen to this again. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now listen, I want to stop there for a second, because those of us in the room that might say something along the lines of, I'm not sure what my ministry is. I'm not sure what ministry I'm going to get involved in. I'm not sure where I need to get plugged in. Answer is for you right here. We have all been called to the same ministry. The ministry of reconciliation. That is, he clarifies this statement, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, God sent his son to die in your place, and he's not holding the sins against you anymore. That's reconciliation. I forgive you, right? Relationship restored. And then has given us the job of reconciling the world back to him. So then verse 20 starts this way. Because of based on all of that, therefore, based on all that information, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, listen to this. This is amazing. God making his appeal through us. I sometimes think, could God have made a worse choice than me sometimes? Like, like why in the world do I have this spot? Paul called himself 
the chief of all sinners. And I find that laughable when I read his letters. But he viewed his sin as bad enough to put Jesus on the cross. And that set, and to him, it was like, my sin is so bad that it put Jesus on the cross. I'm the chief of all sinners. Well, guess what? We're all the chief of all sinners. There's not a, there's not a hierarchy of sin. We all are tied for first place in the garbage department. But because of this reconciling work God's called us to, he is calling us his ambassadors. The imagery is important. So if you were to go to a foreign country on a trip and things went south, you lost your passport, you got robbed, uh, you got arrested, something happened, you got in a car accident, something, and you're lost, and you're wandering through the streets of a place you don't know where the language you don't know and you look off in the distance and you see a building with an American flag flying above it. Run towards that building. Because the second you step foot through the gates of that building, you are on American soil, no matter where that building is in the world. And there's a person assigned to that building who lives in that country, works in that country, works with the people in that country, explains the culture of America in that country, is there to work with Americans visiting in that country, and his title is what? Ambassador. Ambassador. No matter where he goes in that country, he is representing the United States of America. No matter where he goes, no matter where he, what he does. He goes to the grocery store, he's the ambassador of the United States. He goes to a restaurant, he is the ambassador of the United States. He goes to a sporting event, he is the ambassador of the United States. His title never gets taken off. He is in that country, living on foreign soil as a representative, when people look at him, they get a glimpse of what it looks like to be an American. He's going to champion what it looks like to be an American in that country. Is that painted a little bit clearer as to what we're called to? You go to the grocery store, you're an ambassador for Jesus. You go out to eat, you're an ambassador for Jesus. You go out with your friends, you're an ambassador to Jesus. You're at a family function, you're an ambassador of Jesus. You are home with your family, you are an ambassador of Jesus. You are alone with your computer or your phone in your hands, you are an ambassador of Jesus. You are on social media, you are an ambassador of Jesus. You're on Twitter, you are an ambassador of Jesus. What you share is what represents Christ. What you do represents Christ. People in your life are getting a picture of who Jesus is through you. You are the mirror. When they look at you through the mirror, they see the reflection of Jesus. Let that sink in a little bit. That should feel kind of heavy. That should feel kind of weighty. If you're not ready for that responsibility then I don't know if you're ready to be a follower of Christ. Consider the cost, the Word of God says. If you are here and you have surrendered your life to Jesus already, you are an ambassador to Christ. Why would you not want that? Why would you not want the people around you to have a renewed relationship, a, a peace relationship with the Holy God. If you believed it so much, you gave your life to it at some point. Why are you not living in it? Why do I choose to walk away from it so easily? Why do I choose to get involved in the conversation I shouldn't? Why do I do that, God? Why do I have to come back to you for the thousandth time confessing that sin again? Why do I do this? Right? I don't know if you've been there, but I've been there more times than I'd care to admit. But you know what's remarkable is every time I, get, I just get hung up on the weight of being an ambassador for Jesus, I'm reminded in the moments when Satan wants to attack me with self-deprecation and depression or whatever you want to call it, I'm reminded of the grace of God manifested in the person of Jesus that he looked at me and he said, you are worthy of my love. You are worthy of the riches and the glories and the splendors of my kingdom. You are a rightful heir to the, to the family name. You are a rightful heir to the kingdom of heaven. When I look at you, I see my son. 
That's what Jesus says. Why wouldn't I want that? And why wouldn't I want to live in that truth? And when I do live in that truth, I have to accept the responsibility that I am a new creation and God has given me his absolute best so that I can give him my absolute best. He's given me a new life. So if you're here today and you haven't met Jesus, reconciliation is afforded to you just like it was to me. And if you're here today and you have met a real Jesus, if you have been made new, then you and I have a mission. The mission of God making his appeal to all humanity through us. That's awesome. That is a privilege. That is hard. Quite frankly, it's impossible to do that well without Jesus. It's impossible to do that well without the Holy Spirit. So God has afforded us a new life. God has given us a mission and a script. And so I ask you, as the early church fathers would have asked at the end of them giving a message, how then will you live? God, we are grateful for the peace and reconciliation that you afford us through your Son. We ask that we leave today different than we came in, that we would want to offer you the best we have to offer. That we would accept the privilege and the honor and the weight and responsibility of being your ambassador. That you are making your appeal to humanity through us. And as those we come in contact with see you in us, it draws them into relationship with you. And God, we are able to just continue to try our best to live in this truth and reality. Lord, win people to your name and use us to do it. Grow your kingdom. We are new creations. Give us the strength to live out of that.